0: Second Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame but just as everything we said to you was true so also our boasting before Titus has proved true and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all how you received him with fear and trembling I rejoice because I have completed have I have complete confidence in you let's pray Father, we once again thank you for the words here of Paul, Lord, we thank you for his example. Lord, as we see his love and concern for the church in Corinth, Lord, the reminder of how great it is to see growth in a church, repentance, Father, people obeying the word, what a joy that is, and a joy to be able to encourage others as we see that growth. Father, we pray that we would be a church that follows in this example, Lord. Lord, we pray for Pastor Toby as he comes. We pray that you would fill him with your spirit, Lord, that your spirit would be actively involved in all of our hearts as we hear your word. Lord, that perhaps we also need to repent and come to repentance. Father, we thank you and praise
1: you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> A couple of weeks ago, I thanked the uh the deacons who are particularly involved in all the work that's been going on in the renovations. And as you can If you watch carefully, you'll see things are incomplete, but yet slowly being completed, including a few pieces of carpet here and there, um, unless you took them. If you took the pieces of carpet, please bring them back. (laughs) We need them. Um, But I do want to say thank you. I mean, if it were left to me, who knows what color or style of carpet would actually be in this room. I would probably have it pre-stained with coffee. Uh, just so that there would be no worries. Uh, But I do want to thank Laura Staley and Beth Waltz and my bride and uh, Debbie Jones and Allie Nastase for all the time and energy that they have put into you. You would think you just pick a carpet, but it is really complicated. Uh, And so I'm thankful for the time that those ladies have invested in that. that. Um, So thank you. I also wanted to update you... with really no update regarding my trip to Chile. I leave, I'm scheduled to leave next Sunday afternoon. Um, it really will be probably closer to an 11th hour type decision. Uh, there's no reason for me to not go at this point, so just keep praying for the Lord to make that possible. The shape of my trip and what I do there may change based on uh, people's capacity to actually get to the places where training would happen. However, uh, I will go. So uh, I have lots of things to take to the Sharps. I have biblical counseling training manuals that they can just use on their own if they'd like. I also have some uh, biblical counseling books in Spanish as I took some to uh, the Purcells last summer. I will take some to the Sharps next week. So continue to pray for that. (coughs) As a Christian, I wonder... What keeps you encouraged? I wonder what gives you strength to keep going in times of despair. I wonder what lifts your chin when you're despondent. I wonder what restores motivation when you know you're stuck in apathy. I wonder what brings you joy when it's lacking? Well, now, of course, you say, of course, Toby, um, God does that. God does it by His Spirit. Well, of course He does, but God uses means, doesn't He? Primary among them would be His Word. God encourages us through His Word. In fact, Romans 15 says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You see, it's through the Scriptures that we're reminded of His presence with us. We're reminded of His eternal perspective on our temporal trials. We're reminded of His purposes and our pain, of His power and our weakness, of His persevering love when we're so fickle. We go back to His Word over and over again, and we're encouraged. We're reminded of who He is and what He's done for us, and we have joy in that. But God does use other things. Sometimes He gives us encouragement and gives us joy just by helping us to see that we've made spiritual progress. Just to take those moments when, you know what, last year in this very same situation, I would have exploded in darkness. And I hope not. Well, now that's not as far as we want to go. However, that's a step in the right direction, isn't it? And we can be encouraged when the Lord helps us with the fruits of the Spirit with joy, with with love, with patience, with kindness, with self-control. We can also be encouraged by the Lord and given joy when He answers prayer, can't we? Weren't you encouraged when you got the email saying that Brenda Purcell's Mass was gone? Did you have joy spring up in your heart in that moment? Because the Lord answers. On the day I called, David writes, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. And another way God encourages us and gives us joy is through other Christians. In fact, it's one of the prime reasons why we gather here regularly. You know Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, people think that pastors have some sort of ulterior motive, like our goal is just to get you in the building. If we could just get you in the building and get you in a pew, then then we're doing good here. But the writer to the Hebrews does not contrast not gathering with gathering. He doesn't contrast sleeping in with showing up. He contrasts not gathering with encouraging one another. He says, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. In other words... I'm not saying you should do this, but it's just like not showing up if we don't come for the reasons that God brings us together. Don't neglect, but encourage. Paul knew this. He sent his co-worker Tychicus on a couple of journeys just to encourage the hearts of Christians. Ephesians 6, He says of him, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He says almost precisely the same thing in Colossians 4, 8. And we see from our text that Paul actually experiences encouragement and joy from other Christians. Now, remember the context. Back in chapter 6, what did Paul do? He said the reconciliation we have with God should bring reconciliation between you and me and in 6:11 to 13 he says open your hearts we've opened our hearts to you open your hearts to me and then he says the flip side of that coin is don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers don't keep following the false apostles don't hook your wagon to people who are going to take you off the cliff And then he comes back and he says the very same thing again in 7.2, doesn't he? He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Implication, the false apostles, that's what they do. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. He is content with them. He is satisfied with them. They are in his hearts. I mean, imagine that. The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm satisfied with you. I'm content with you. I love you. And these people are saying, get out of town. Well, now that doesn't sound like his needs, her needs, does it? I'll love you if you love me. Apparently, the, the love that Paul has for the Corinthian church is not based on their love for him. His love for them is based on Christ's love for him. You want to revolutionize the way that you love one another? Love in your marriage? Love in your friendships? Love in this church? Stop finding your motivation to love others in whether they love you or how they treat you. It will revolutionize your life to love solely because He first loved us. And so, we love. And so, Paul loves. And so, he says... I am filled with comfort, verse 4. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. This word comfort is uh, the same word that's translated elsewhere as encouragement. The reason why I think the ESV and others translate it comfort is because he's always talking about in affliction. And comfort just in the context of affliction goes better than affliction with encouragement, but that's exactly what it is, and both of them basically mean the same thing. It means to strengthen somebody for what they're doing. Comfort is with strength. We're supposed to get comfort. That's not the easing of pain. That's strength in the pain. That's what comfort is. And so he's saying, I'm filled, I'm filled with encouragement. As I think about you, as I think about the fact that you are in our hearts. I would die with you. I would live with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. In all of the affliction that I've faced because of you, I am overflowing with joy. And so he's filled with comfort. He's filled with encouragement. He's overflowing in joy because of, we'll find out, because of Titus, but also because of them. In other words, God encourages Paul and gives Paul joy through other Christians. He has joy in the Lord for sure. The joy of the Lord is his strength. He's the one who wrote about God's persevering love and God's purposes and pain. He finds encouragement in all that, and he encourages others with it. The the Lord will return, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. So encourage one another with that, too. But here he's saying other believers are a source of encouragement to him. Now what you'll notice is none of these people say something to try and encourage him. They just are an encouragement they just are a source of joy. And I want us to take that to heart today, that quite frankly, God encourages us, gives us encouragement and joy through other Christians. So notice how Paul says it, that God does it. First, just in their presence. This is remarkable. Look at, look at verse 6. Look at verse 5 and 6. Of chapter 7, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, notice God is doing the comforting, God is doing the encouraging, God is going to be the one giving him joy, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, meaning something just about Titus showing up gave Paul comfort. Isn't that amazing? He just showed up. Now, this is picking up where Paul left off back before this long excursus on uh, gospel ministry. Turn backwards to chapter 2 and look at verse 12. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul had gone to Troas, Acts 20. He was there for seven days. It was during that seven days that Eutychus falls asleep during the sermon, falls out the window, okay? Please don't do... This is why it's a good reason to all be on one floor, all right? But after seven days, he's preaching, but Titus isn't there. They were supposed to meet in Troas, but Titus never showed. Titus was a trusted co-worker of Paul's. I mean, here, Paul had sent him to Corinth to find out how's the church, how are things going, find out if there are any results from our work there, find out what God is doing. And you'll know that later, Paul actually assigns Titus to the island of Crete, and Titus's job is to make sure the churches are organized and established the way they ought to be established. He is a trusted co-worker. But more than that, Titus is dear to Paul. Paul loves Titus. In his letter to him, he calls him my true child in our common faith. He loves him. He loves him. Paul didn't just work with people, you understand. He gave himself... To them. He did it to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, he says to Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Just seeing Timothy will bring him joy. Ministry partnerships, if you will, are not merely instrumental. They are in the right way sentimental there is affection he loved his partners he gave to gave himself to them so titus not showing up didn't just disrupt a plan it disturbed paul's spirit that's what he says in chapter 2 I think that's part of what's meant here in in chapter 7 by the fear within. It's part of why he's downcast. He wondered what was going on. How was God, who comforts the downcast, going to comfort Paul? How is God going to lift his chin? How is God going to strengthen him? You know how God did it? One day there was a knock at the door, and the door was opened, and there was Titus. He's back. He's back. Have you ever had that? Just the the very arrival of someone. The Lord uses it to lift your spirit. In a time when you are just down and out. And someone shows up. They didn't necessarily come bearing a gift except themselves. They just showed up. It's a wonderful thing. Yes, of course, he brings news that is going to encourage Paul as well. It's going to, the news will cause joy to burst in Paul's heart, but just seeing him encouraged Paul. When Adniram Judson and his wife Anne were in Burma, there came a time when, if you will, the heat was being turned up on their mission. And Adniram felt like if he could find some Burmese-speaking Christians to be part of the mission... It might give them, you know, uh, a better place in the society. So, he's going to go on a trip to find these people and bring them back. It's only going to take three months. Now, there's no texting. There's no phone calls. There's no email. There's not even really mail. There's no letters just going back and forth at this point. But he's going to be gone three months. So, he leaves. Three months go by. Four months go by. Five months go by, six months go by, seven months go by, and not a word from her husband. Can you imagine, ladies, can you imagine what Anne is thinking at that point? I better update my eHarmony. I mean, that's what she's thinking. <laughs> the, the four widows dating website, I don't know. But she's thinking he is never coming back. She almost leaves the mission with a couple other missionaries and goes somewhere else, but she, at the last minute, decides, if I do that and he shows up, then we'll never find each other. And about a week after the seven-month mark passes, she gets word. He's only a few days away on a ship. So she picks up her pen, and this is what she writes to her parents in a letter she's just perpetually writing. How will you rejoice with me, my dear parents, when I tell you that I have this moment heard that Mr. Judson has arrived at the mouth of the river? This joyful intelligence more than compensates for the months of dejection and distress which his long absence has occasioned. Now I feel ashamed of my repinings, my want of confidence in God, and resignation to His will. I have foolishly thought because my trials were protracted they would never end." or rather that they would terminate in some dreadful event which would destroy all hope of the final success of the mission. But now, I trust our prospects will brighten again and cause us to forget this night of affliction or to remember it as having been the means of preparing us for the reception of that greatest of blessings, the conversion of some of the Burmans. Do you hear what happened? She's in complete affliction because her husband is nowhere to be found. And just knowing he's there and will be back momentarily springs to life joy and encouragement in her heart. That's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. Titus was a sight for sore eyes. And God encouraged him. And dear Christian, I would tell you that we all need relationships like that meaningful relationships in the church. This is why we don't say that one of the ways we glorify God is just by encouraging one another. We encourage one another in meaningful fellowship because that's where it takes place. It's more than small talk. It's more than a handshake and a smile, though those may be places you need to begin We need to give ourselves to others and have others give themselves to us to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to encourage and to be encouraged. We need relationship. God has made us to be in that kind of interdependent family in the church. And one more thing, don't underestimate the power of showing up. Never underestimate the power of just showing up. When some friend is in distress, you just show up. You ever just showed up and said, Come on, we're going to go get a cup of coffee right now. Let's just go. Don't underestimate the power of that when someone's hurting. Don't underestimate it's not just taking a meal to someone so that one logistical item is off of their to do list. It's taking a meal to someone because through a simple meal God can bring encouragement to that other person. Just through their presence God encourages us through other Christians. The second thing that we see here is through His work. His work in other Christians encourages us. So in addition to sending Titus, Uh, God also encouraged Paul and gave him joy by what he heard from Titus. So, verse 7, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Now, remember, the Corinthian church had turned its back on Paul. Paul had gone and made what he calls in chapter 2, verse 1, a painful visit He's trying to avoid another painful visit, so he sends what is known as the severe letter, a letter we don't have. Based on what he says here about the response to the letter, it must have been calling them to repentance. But listen to how hard it was for him to write this. Look at, turn back to chapter 2, verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, And with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Do you hear that? And then he says in chapter 7, verse 8, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while." Paul didn't take joy in the rebuking. He didn't get up on his high horse to do it. Friend, rebuking, confrontation of sin, is a painful thing. It is a matter of obedience, and it leads to blessing and all of those things. But it is not something you just ought to wake up in the morning saying, "Woohoo! I'm going to get them today. I mean, if you're a boss who just loves cracking down on the employees. If you're a mom or a dad who just loves discipline because it gives you a sense of power over these small people. I exaggerate to make the point. But to watch some people in public disciplining their children, you would think this is why they're doing it. If you're a leader who just loves to point out everyone's flaws, Paul doesn't understand any of those people. And he would say, repent. Repent. Being on the receiving end of rebuke is painful and we should never enjoy it or have a sense of pride in being the one who rebukes. Now, we are aiming at something. We want God to do something, but the actual act of doing it, we know it's bringing pain. And Paul says, I I don't regret it, though I did regret it. I was shedding tears, I was in anguish in my heart. I wish I never had to write the thing. It doesn't mean he won't write the thing. It means, quite frankly, that they are in his heart. And he loves them. So Paul didn't enjoy it. There was a sense of regret, but only for a while, he says, because look at what it did, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us this wasn't this wasn't box you know fighting against the wind in other words this wasn't like walking on a treadmill you know you work really hard and you don't go anywhere he said this actually did something the lord did something and then he steps out to make this general statement which is true just you pluck it out put this on your pillow all right, cross-stitch this into your pillow. Next time you do a pillow, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, he's encouraged by their grief. Rejoicing in their grief because it's a good grief. He says, it's not a worldly grief. Worldly grief is grief over sin, but it's patterned after the world's view of sin. Worldly grief is only pained by the pain sin causes, by the consequences experienced, the the job lost, the, the relationship lost, the discipline from mom and dad. Worldly grief solely focuses on just how my sin affects me. I'm at the center of my universe. My decisions have messed up my universe. I feel really bad about that because I don't like to hurt myself. It's tears shed because of how I've hurt myself. Friends, and worldly grief can actually bring a type of change. I'll do whatever it takes not to hurt myself like that again. And I will just try whatever I can, I will do whatever behavioral change I need to do in order to never hurt myself like that again. I'll just try it. I'll try that. I'll try that program, and I'll try that program, and I'll try that program, and I'll try that program, and, 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 and I do not want to be hurt like this again. And I don't want to lose another relationship like that. And I don't want to lose another job like that. And I don't want to lose all my money again, and I don't want to... Now, it may seem like this is a good thing. It's at least partially good, right? I mean, any change in a positive direction should encourage us, right? Well, I understand what is meant by that. And there could be a type of relative good. I mean, if a man stops hurting his wife out of wrong motives, I'm still glad he's not hurting his wife, right? But what does Paul ultimately say here? Paul says worldly grief leads to death. If if I'm walking off a cliff, certain death, with a broken leg, worldly grief puts a splint on my bandaged leg and gives me painkillers but leaves me on the path so that I'm going to walk right off the cliff but I'll feel better doing it now you tell me were the painkillers in the splint good? I'll let you answer that over lunch Paul's encouraged not by worldly grief it doesn't give him joy what he's celebrating is godly grief now godly grief may feel the pain of all of the loss that worldly grief does but godly grief sees the biggest problem in the room is not the broken leg the biggest problem is in the room is I'm on a path that's going to take me right over that cliff the biggest problem in the room is that I have sinned against God That's the biggest problem in the room. And that's what godly grief tells me. This is where the Bible would take us. This is where we should take one another. Godly grief is what David is talking about in Psalm 51. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against his whole army. He had indeed sinned against the entire nation of Israel. But what does he say in Psalm 51? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's not saying I haven't sinned against other people. David sees the biggest reality in his life. And quite frankly, until that gets solved, nothing else matters. Worldly grief exclusively sees the horizontal problems caused by sin. Godly grief primarily sees the vertical problem caused by sin without dismissing the horizontal. Because godly grief, which is going to lead to repentance, is going to change things horizontally. But it doesn't start there, and it doesn't see the biggest problem is there. The biggest problem is with God. And so for those who've repented in Corinth, now quite frankly, it's not everyone. Do you know how I know that? Because he keeps calling them to make room in his heart, in their hearts for him. So apparently there is a group who responded to the painful letter positively, but there's still a group who's not, which is why he's doing this. But for those who don't, Have repented, they have godly grief. They see that the biggest problem isn't that they hurt Paul. The biggest problem isn't that I've offended Paul. The biggest problem is that I've offended God. And so they repent. That's what must change, in other words what I've done against God. I wonder, when you you sin against a friend, when you are harsh in response to them, when you are prideful in your interactions with them, and you see that it's wrong and needs to be corrected, what is it that first comes to mind? I need to go to that person or I have sinned against a holy God. It seems there are times that we can be so focused just on settling matters horizontally that we forget the biggest problem we've caused. We have disrupted our fellowship with God. Boy, this can happen in parenting, can't it? You did that to your brother. You go in there. You know what to do, right? You know how to make things right, right? Yes. Well, then. Sorry. (laughs) Will you forgive me? I forgive you. Boy, if we stop there, we stop short. We're, we're training our children to only think horizontally about their sin against other people. Our sin is first and foremost against God. So not worldly grief, but godly grief. And even though he's still talking about godly grief, I just wanted to, I wanted to separate this out. It's productive grief. Look at what it does in verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Then verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced. Yeah? This repentance, this change of heart and mind, it's not... It is internal. It begins there, but repentance shows itself in a change of life. This is why John the Baptist looked at the crowd who said they were coming to repent. And in Luke 3 8, he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And the crowd's like, What does that mean? And he says, Well, it would mean you soldiers stop defrauding people. If you got two tunics, share one. You know, I mean, he just starts giving them practical things that they can do which would express a heart of repentance. But it's going to work itself out. And Paul observes this change. Look at all the things he observes in verse 11. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. I mean, they're earnest, they're longing. In other words, their whole desire is changed, it's a different direction. Their desire was taking them away from Paul and his message, and now it's taking them to him, to his message. Back to it, they want to change the way that they live. They're eager to clear themselves. They want to commend the gospel with their lives. They have righteous indignation, agitation, hatred for sin, a reverent fear of God, and a zeal to change. And they want punishment, not self-punishment. But they want those who've been instrumental in leading the church astray to be held accountable. Because that's what seen, he seems to be indicating in verse 12. He says, I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong or for the sake of the one wronged. Apparently there were some people leading the way when the church turned their back on, on Paul. But it was so that your eagerness, your repentance would be revealed in the sight of God. Godly grief produces repentance. It's productive. It does the work. That's what, that's what it actually means. It's a working verb. Producing there uh, is a working verb. Godly grief gets in us, and it goes to work. It does not leave us where we are. It takes us to repentance. It takes us to salvation, it takes us away from regret. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. And just remember, remember who Paul's talking to here. This is not an evangelistic crusade where he's up on a box on the, on the street corner preaching to the masses, saying, hey, worldly grief will do you no good, though he would say that. He's talking to the church. He's saying, worldly grief will do us no good. Our lives should be marked by godly grief and repentance. Whenever we sin... We should be grieved because we have offended our holy God, our gracious God, our merciful, slow to anger, patient, patient to a thousand generations, God. And we should hate it. And in the fear of God, we should be zealous to change. That is the Christian life in many ways. In essence, when we sin, we have lost our Christian minds. Repentance is a change of mind. We have to be brought back, transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we keep repenting so that even though we don't have to sin, because we're not slaves to sin... We do sin. So as long as we live in this world, as long as the power of sin is active, you and I will be repenting. And here's what's great. A life committed to repentance is a life absent of regret. You may travel the world. You may take everything off your bucket list. You may leave a great legacy. This is often what people talk about. You know, I just want to end my life with no regrets. I, I went and saw it. I went and did it. I went and experienced it. I did it all. Paul's saying, you want a life with no regrets? Live a life marked by repentance. No one committed to a life of repentance will come to the end of life and say, what was I doing with my life? Nobody will say that. That's good news. And for those who aren't Christians, quite frankly, Paul would say the same for you. The biggest problem is not the way that our choices rot, make, make our lives rotten and destroy relationships here. The biggest problem is that our sin against God has separated us from Him and, and condemns us to eternal death. But on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God has been satisfied because every sin was laid on Him. So He died in our place, and He rose again, over victorious over sin and over hell, and when one repents and turns to Him and trusts in Him alone to save them, He embraces us and forgives us and never lets us go. And friend, you will never regret it a day in your life if you give your heart to Jesus Christ. Your life will be hard. It would have been hard anyway. Those who follow Jesus will not get to the end of life and think, what was I thinking? Not a single person. But there are some who heard the gospel all their lives and only at the very end, by God's sweet, patient grace, come to faith just before they enter eternity. And it's often those who think, oh, look what I missed my whole life. A life of repentance leads to salvation. Paul sees God at work in the Corinthian church, bringing good grief, godly grief, repentance. And he says he's encouraged by it. He was comforted by hearing this news. He rejoiced that they were grieved into repenting and then he finishes in verse 13 therefore we are comforted. He's encouraged and receives joy by Titus's presence, just the presence of others who you're in a relationship with, through God's work in others and then finally in their joy. Now imagine this moment, okay? This is verses 13 to 16. He says besides our own comfort, we Rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. Imagine the moment that Titus shows up. Yeah? Yeah? Door opens. There's Titus. Joy springs in Paul's heart. They sit down. They pour their coffee. They start to talk. Titus begins to spill with all that's happening. And he can't wipe the smile off his face. He's smiling from ear to ear. He finds himself laughing at times. He's welling up with tears as he talks about what the Lord has done in Corinth. And Paul, watching, can't stop smiling with him, laughing with him, tearing up with him. He's rejoicing with the one who rejoices. He's taking such joy in Titus's joy. Paul's joy, if you will, is bound up with Titus's joy, it's bound up with, which was bound up with the Corinthians. They'd received Him with respect and honor. They were ready to obey God's Word. It was all that they had hoped for, all that they had prayed for in Corinth was actually happening. The Lord is at work. And He's not just taking notes. Yes, so now how many converts were there? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you have a list of things you did while you were there? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he is caught up in the joy of the Lord that he sees in Titus. He loves it. This week I went to lunch with two friends. They're uh, both at another church. A church I would be glad for any number of people to go to. Not you, I'd like you to stay here. But, uh, <laughs> but a, a church that we would say, yes, Lord, right? And as we sat there, I shared with them how at the beginning of August we began to pray on Fridays. How we began to fast on Fridays. And I began to share with them how the Lord was answering those prayers and gave them three or four different just little snippets of things of ways the Lord is answering our prayers. And do you know neither one of them sulked or thought can't believe that's happening in your church. <laughs> I wish that happened in my church. Do you know what they did? They rejoiced with me. They loved it. I shared all of that, and then all of us just talked about how, how quickly we can just forget the power of prayer and the fact that God answers when we call on Him. And we just all agreed we we can't stop being devoted to prayer. We must keep praying. I wonder when, when other Christians are rejoicing in what God's doing in their lives or in their churches that really should encourage our hearts, that really should give us joy, I wonder how you respond to that. You just put on a happy face and get through the conversation and walk away. It's like, man, I wish God was doing that in my life. I've been praying for 25 years for this and... I just haven't seen anything. Or do you rejoice in the joy that God is giving to them in response to the work he's doing? Friends, we ought to be ba- we just ought to get caught up in one another's joy. 1 Corinthians 12 says, When one member suffers, all suffers with him. When one member is honored, all rejoice with him. That's what we should be doing. Paul was downcast, fighting without, fear within. But through the presence of Titus and God's work in the Corinthians and the joy of Titus, Paul is encouraged. Paul's filled with joy. Paul's chin has been lifted. God gives us encouragement and joy through other Christians. One last application, and we'll pray. Friend, if you are isolating yourself from others, not giving yourself to meaningful relationships with Christian brothers and sisters, taking a genuine interest in them, even as they take genuine interest in you, sharing mutual love and accountability, quite frankly, if you're not committed as a Christian to a local church, and by that, I don't just mean to attend the place, I mean formal commitment and meaningful commitment because both are revealed in the New Testament. Then the problem begins with the fact that that's disobedience. But also you're missing out. I mean my goodness, look around this room you just see one of the great means that God has to keep you encouraged and give you joy. Here they are. And if we just pass the mic, any who knows how many of you would have a story about how somebody showed up at a certain time and the Lord just encouraged my soul. Who knows how many of you would have a story about we'd been praying for her brother, his niece, for years. And God answered. Who knows how many of you would say, I just, I just can't be around that person without being joyful. Joyful. God gives us encouragement and joy through other Christians. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before You thankful that You have not only called us to Yourself, but You have called us into a family in which we are loved and love one another, in which we are encouraged and encourage one another, in which we are built up and we build one another up, in which we are spurred on to love and to good deeds and do the same for others. Thank you that you have not called us to walk through this life as a Christian alone. To not isolate ourselves and try to figure it out on our own. Thank you that you give encouragement and joy through other Christians. Help us to be an encouragement and joy to one another and help us to take encouragement and joy in our relationships with one another. Help us, Lord, to glorify you by encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship. We pray, Lord, that those who aren't part of the family, who don't know Jesus Christ, will come to see even today that repenting and trusting in Him will never lead to regret but to salvation. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.